Good morning, everyone. My name is Aaron, and I will be reading today's scripture passage, which Mike helped me out with. <laughs> um, it is Isaiah 11, 1 to 10. In the Pew Bible, it can be found on page 539. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in, on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea." In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. This morning we begin our Advent preaching. Advent means coming or arrival. It's the time that Christians throughout the world focus on the three arrivals of Jesus, the three advents of Jesus. The first advent, his arrival as a baby, his arrival into our hearts by faith, and we look forward to his future glorious, bright second arrival. We had planned to preach Psalm 46 during Advent, and that's still our plan for the rest of December um, you'll see Pastor David McHale's name in the bulletin as the preacher for this week. He was not feeling well, and we thought he'd get better. <laughs> we hoped. Uh, I hoped <laughs> he would get better. Uh, but yesterday morning, we made the call that that wasn't going to happen. He is going to get better. <laughs> Just not before this morning. I know I, I'm not the, the Lord knows, but I am confident he'll get better from the flu. <laughs> And uh, be with us next week. So he'll probably be leading us in Psalm 46 next week. So you're stuck with me this morning. And on short notice, we're going to a favorite Christmas passage of mine. It's a favorite because it points to these three meanings of Advents. It, it points to the first coming of Christ as a baby born to die. The coming of Christ in our hearts by faith and the change that makes in a believer's life. And it points to the second coming at the end of the time. Now, all scriptures point to Jesus. They pertain to Jesus in some way. But some passages are like bright, flashing lights. Might we say Christmas lights. 
that signal to us the beauty and brightness of the advent of the Messiah. And Isaiah 11 is one of those passages. So let's ask for the Lord's help to see this beauty, and then we'll look at the passage more closely together. Would you pray with me again? Heavenly Father, we we didn't expect, I didn't expect to be here this morning preaching this passage, but Christmas, like most of life, and like the first Christmas, is full of surprises. Lord, would you surprise us with truth we didn't know we need, but truth we have in Jesus? Would you rivet our attention on the bright, flashing lights that are the promise of the advents of Jesus Christ? In his name we pray, amen. You've probably had conversations in your life before where you only hear part of the conversation. Maybe you walk into a room and people are talking and you're confused. You, you, you think, okay, I'm not sure what to make of this. I, I'm going to need more context. Someone's going to have to bring me on the inside, otherwise I'm going to miss it. Well, as we open up the book of Isaiah, I, I want to make sure we have the proper context to see the brightness of this passage and the greatness of the Messiah. So, let me just take some time, and, and just full disclosure, this is, this is 10 minutes, so 10 minutes here on the context of Isaiah, but I, I, I think it will pay dividends as we see what Isaiah is telling us, God is telling us through Isaiah in chapter 11. So a few passages to set the context. So if you're there on 539 in one of these pew Bibles, flip over to what looks to be 530. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, that's a good place to get some context. The opening line here of the book of Isaiah, as is the pattern with many of the prophetic books in the Bible, we're given a statement of the prophet's family connections, geographic connections, and a list of the kings who ruled during his ministry. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and these are kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All of these details are significant. These details tell a story. They give insights into the political and spiritual milieu that Isaiah inhabited. Just like if I mentioned presidents more from the distant past, such as President Washington or Lincoln or Kennedy, or more recent presidents such as President Bush or Obama or Trump, These names communicate in just just a name something of the context. To say Lincoln calls to our minds Gettysburg and Civil War. To say President Bush, we think of 9-11 in Iraq. 
As we pull these dates together from these kings, these Judean kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these kings tell us that Isaiah's ministry was a long one. And if you read his book carefully, you notice that his ministry even extended into the terrible reign of King Manasseh. He was Hezekiah's son. And when you stack these dates together the, of his prophetic ministry, something like 60 years go by. From 740 B.C. to 681 B.C., which are dates taken from the year King Uzziah died, chapter 6, verse 1, and later a passage that speaks of Sennacherib, a foreign king who is mentioned in chapter 37. Anyway, a, a lot happened during these years. There were a few moments of prosperity and peace, but on the whole, there was turmoil, especially amongst the surrounding nations. In fact, in 721 BC, so just more or less a third of the way into his ministry, the northern kingdom of Israel is captured and taken into exile. Just just to, to think about that, if living in a southern kingdom Northern Kingdom exile, so Israel's in two parts at this time. Just, just, just think what it would be like to be here in Pennsylvania. And I know this is bizarre, but, but Canada comes down and grabs the city and state of New York and brings everyone back to Nova Scotia, something like that. Just, just think how that would affect our ministry here in Pennsylvania. Or maybe with less imagination, perhaps you can imagine what it would be like to live in the southern part of Ukraine as a war is raging in the northern portion against Russia. Think how that would affect your little church. This is Isaiah's ministry. It's not always possible to discern the exact date of an event and little snippets of Isaiah that the Lord is speaking. Like we don't know exactly what part. It's something of kind of like an iPod shuffle. Back when there were iPods, now there's iPhones, I know. But it's, it's, it's hard to know what's going on sometimes. But sometimes there's more context. So chapters 7 through 11 give a few more details, especially if we were to look at chapter 7. I won't point you there to any specific verse, but I will tell you that King Ahaz is reigning. He's one of those southern kings, a Judean king. And it's taking place, our passage 7 through 11, at a time when an alliance is forged. At the time, Assyria is the big dog on the block, so to speak. They're the superpower. So Judah's here, Israel's here, Syria is right above the, the, the time. And then over here in Babylon and area-ish is Assyria. And they're the big superpower at the time. And Syria teams up with the northern kingdom and they say, let's, let's team up together and make Judah do the same so that together we could fight off Assyria. So they put the pressure on the southern king Ahaz, and God tells Ahaz through Isaiah, no, 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 don't do that, God will save you. So Ahaz doesn't listen, but instead what he does instead is cozies up with Assyria. He gives them a large tribute, and he's protected in a sense, but then what happens is... Um, uh, I was going to say Israel, but the southern kingdom, Judea, is, is bound into servitude with Assyria. What, 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 what does that mean? Well, I'll put it this way. It's difficult for the people of God to be the people of God when the world is calling the shots. 
When, when the church is in league with politics too much, not that there are Christian politicians, but rather that the church and politics wed too tightly together, then there's problems and there were problems. So those are some of the events in the background of our passage. And so I say all of that to point out that the people of God were fragile. Their kingdom, which once looked like this thriving forest, was being chopped to the ground. And among the people of God, there was infighting and idolatry. And outside her borders, there were wars and rumors of wars and massive cultural shifts. I'll put it this way. Isaiah's ministry was to prophesy to a kingdom in free fall. The kingdom was sliding down the slippery slope. They agreed with their own sin. What does that have to do with anything? Well, the people of God were tempted to trust the means of the world to overcome their problems rather than trusting God. And when you put it like that, it feels really contemporary. It doesn't feel so foreign, does it? Before we dive back into Chapter 11, look with me just at one more passage to set the context. Chapter 6, this is a passage famous for Isaiah's call into ministry. Chapter 5, verse 34, I'm going to read a number of verses here. Verses 1 through 8 go like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Just, just you think of the turbulence of that. A king passing away. In the year that King Uzziah died, like he died, a man who died, I saw the Lord on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. These are angels of sorts. And with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There's some context for you. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt shall be taken away, and your sin atoned for This all sounds so lofty and glorious and fearful and terrifying and gracious and awesome, all of that at once. Isaiah sees mighty angels unable to look at the Lord, and yet they sing with a volume at such volume that it shakes the heavenly temples. Then Isaiah sees his sin. And God symbolically atones for his sin with this burning coal. Then God calls for a missionary. It's a part I didn't read, but he says, who's going to go and preach to these people with unclean lips now that your lips have been cleaned? And Isaiah says, ooh, 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 send me, Lord. Here I am. You know what happens next? God calls Isaiah to preach, but he sends him to preach to a people that it says won't hear won't understand, won't turn and repent. You'll preach, Mr. Isaiah, but there'll be no revival. Not yet, anyway, God says. 
So in verse 11 responds Isaiah something like, how long will that go? (laughs) Honest question. God answers that this will happen until the cities are burned to the ground, until the metaphorical forest that is God's people becomes nothing but a dead stump. Verse 13. That word stump is used twice in verse 13. It's a key word for understanding our passage in chapter 11. The thick, glorious family tree that is the people of God is to become just a stump. And it's going to happen through Isaiah's preaching. It's going to fell the forest. My house, just a few minutes from here, has these huge, more than I think a hundred foot tall hemlock trees. And over the years, as one or another has begun to look more dangerous, perhaps some branches were falling or leaning, we've had to cut a few of them down. This is what God says is going to happen to the people. Sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? But here's where the book of Isaiah gets good. There's more than chapter 6. There's more that God wants to say to his people through the prophet Isaiah. He, he, he wants them to say, and what he wants to say more of is good news for them and for us. Like really good news. So our first point was the context of Isaiah 11, namely a people in need of God's arrival or advent. Now we have this context. Let's go to our second point of the sermon. How great is the advent of the Messiah? When I ask that question, how great is the advent of the Messiah, I want you to have in mind a similar but different sounding question. A father might ask his young daughter, maybe a daughter who has just gotten into trouble and is worried that her sin will cause her father to stop loving her. And his father looks at her and asks, Sweetie, how much do I love you? She looks down at her feet and shrugs her shoulders. His father takes his thumbs and, and wipes away her tears and says, No, 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 look up. H- how much do I love you? And he he holds out his hands. He says, this much. This much I love you. What Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, is like God saying, "Look, look up, daughter. This much I love you. Or to phrase the question differently, how great is the Messiah? Answer, well, this great. No, 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 this great. No, 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 this great. Look again at verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Does that word stump not feel electric? A bright flashing light now that we've seen the context? Jesse was the father of King David, and the picture here is of a royal family tree that had grown strong, but then that tree became diseased and bore poisoned fruit to such an extent that God had to cut the tree down because the fruit was hurting the people, and it was bringing shame on the owner of the tree. 
It was the only thing to be done. And to everyone who would have walked by this royal stump of a family tree, if they would have even noticed, all they would have seen is a dead hunk of wood. How great is the Messiah? From this dead hunk of wood, there will be a shoot or a little twig, a a toothpick of sorts. And though it seems insignificant and fragile, this shoot will become the means of giving life to its people. This shoot will become a branch. It will become a tree again, a tree that will bear good fruit. fruit. Fruit isn't merely edible. Fruit is sweet. Fruit tastes good. From a dead stump, God will raise up a life-giving Messiah. From the tiny town of Bethlehem would come a king. Oh, church, you may feel as though the work of God in your life has extraordinary obstacles stacked against it. And you may be right. But so were they stacked against this twig from the stump of Jesse. Let's keep going. Look at verses 2 through 5. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight. So this shoot is a hymn. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decides Disputes by what his ears hear, I'll have to explain that in a moment. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his wrath. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. How great is the Messiah? Two main pictures emerge in this passage. The first picture is the special connection that the Messiah has with the Lord. We're told told that the Spirit of the Lord shall what upon him? What does it say? Rest upon him. Intermittently, the Spirit would come upon certain leaders in the Old Testament, say a Moses or a Joshua, Samson, even a David. But the one promised here is so great that the Spirit will rest upon him. That's not intermittent, fleeting language. The Spirit will descend upon the leader with permanence, which is great because it means like so many of the kings that have come before him and leaders that have come since. This Messiah will not act on his own. He's not rogue. Instead, he'll be cooperating with the Spirit, and the Spirit will be cooperating with him in fullness. And what is the result of this spirit language? Wisdom, understanding, might. In other words, the Messiah will be one who is fully equipped to do anything and everything that is required of him. He's not held back. He's not diminished. He doesn't have the expertise. He's not insufficient for the task. We see this in the life of Jesus. Spirit resting upon him. He's Conceived when the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and she's, as we read, overshadowed by the Most High, this veiled language from Luke 1.35. At his baptism, the Spirit descended upon Jesus, Luke 3.22. The Spirit then leads Jesus to the desert to do battle with the devil. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Then he returns to town and with 
power in the Spirit, it says. He preaches good news to the poor. Luke 4, 13 and 18. And so his ministry goes on full of the power of the Holy Spirit. And this leads to the second pictures that emerge in Isaiah 11. There's that line about not judging by what he sees or what he hears. And you might think, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> don't, don't we want to judge? To judge by what he sees and what he hears? Like you don't want him to judge by what he feels. The Messiah is so great that when he adjudicates, this, this deciding of things, he does so with a gavel in his strong arm. He's able to penetrate to the heart of the issue and judge with perfect righteousness. We should want judges, we should want judges who judge by what they see and hear because that's about as good as we could hope for in this life. But the greatness of the Messiah is that in his advent, He's not limited in any way. And the result is that the poor and the meek, who are often not fairly represented in courts, that's why they're highlighted here in this passage, will have the protection of the Messiah. And we read of the Messiah being able to, quote, kill the wicked with the breath of his lips. What does that mean? Well, consider in Israel's own day and even into our own, the enormous amounts of money and time and energy and lives that are spent keeping wickedness at bay. It's a lot of work, we might say, to carry the ring to the fires of Mordor. But think of the laws we pass and the officers who try their best to enforce them. And think of the military and the battles we fight and others fight on behalf of justice. So much energy, so much effort, so much loss of life. And how great is the Messiah? <laughs> this great, that one day he will topple evil the way I could stack up dominoes and blow them over. <laughs> Effortless. And now consider the final five verses, six through ten. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth, not just, not just Jerusalem, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. As the waters cover the sea. In that day, circling around, anchoring this passage, bookends, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, think bright light flashing. Of him there shall be nations, of him nations shall, excuse me, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. My previous church was in Tucson, Arizona, and had a beautiful courtyard. Um, it's sunny. <laughs> 300 days a year in Tucson. 
And on one Saturday night after a, Sunday, or a Saturday night service, they're playing in the courtyard, kids and families, and, and this young child named Lily did not get bit, did not get bit. But all of a sudden, there's this commotion over kind of in the tree, kind of bush area where she's playing because there's a coiled rattlesnake. And she almost sat on it. Now, if you live in Tucson, everyone you know has some version of some rattlesnake story, whether it's almost a biting or someone who actually got bit. Now, not everybody has been, but they all know someone. It just looms kind of in your psyche. I'm not going to spend hardly any time on these chunk of verses, but except to point out the overarching point, which is the greatness of the Messiah pictured here is such that when he comes to do his work on earth, he'll do it in such a way that those who once seemed like vicious, deadly predators will become friends. When the Messiah does his work, it will be as though the little child could play with a cobra because the sting is gone. There's nothing to fear. In context, I think these animals represent the nations getting along with one another because of the work of the Messiah. We may not feel that. We may not, you, you may not feel that as as special as it really is. Because the United States is a superpower. We're the lion, the leopard, the bear. ox. But if we saw ourselves more fragile, this promise might mean more to us, mean more of what it meant to them. If we saw ourselves as weak, wounded, and wayward, we might better enjoy the advent of the living Jesus. And the knowledge of the Lord, it says here, it's going to cover the earth the same way the waters cover the sea. How do the waters cover the sea? Well, where there's sea, there's water. (laughs) That's what's going to happen. It's not a very complicated number. Where there's water, there's sea. Where there's land, there's going to be knowledge of the Lord. There's going to be this permanence. This, let's say it this way. The knowledge of God under the full rule and reign of the Messiah will not be intermittent. It will, the knowledge of God won't be sprinkled or pocketed unevenly. There will not be unreached people groups. Rather, the knowledge of the Lord will be thick, coated throughout the world. And what is meant here by knowledge? Knowledge in the fullest sense of what it means so often in the Bible. Not mere awareness, but nearness and intimacy and love. The knowledge that covers the earth as the waters cover the sea is the knowledge of a father wiping away the tears from the cheeks of his daughter and spreading out his arms and saying, I love you this much. And everyone everywhere going, yeah, dad, we get it. (laughs) The Messiah is awesome. That's what's pictured here. I said Isaiah 11 is a favorite passage of mine because of the way it helps us see and know these three meanings of Advent. The Advent of Jesus is threefold. The arrival of Jesus as a baby, his arrival into our hearts by faith, and his future glorious second arrival. There's a fancy phrase that's helpful when reading some passages of the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, It's called prophetic foreshortening. You can hear that and forget it forever. (laughs) But I'm going to go ahead and tell you the phrase. Prophetic foreshortening. You don't need to remember that phrase, but 
You might remember the image that's often used to communicate what that phrase means. It's sort of a word that shows up in seminary courses. But the image that's often used to explain the word is mountain ranges. Okay, so I mentioned earlier, first pastorate, I was lived in Tucson, Arizona for a couple of years. Let me mention it again. Were you to fly to Tucson, Arizona, you would land in the southern part of the city. And were you to get out of the airport and start driving north to where our church was, up in Katero Farms era, area, and you were to look north, you would see in the north a giant mountain range called the Catalina Mountains. And you'd look at that and think, that's a giant mountain range with lots of peaks. But were you from that airport to get on the highway and drive I-10 towards Phoenix, which is two hours, about 30 minutes into the drive, you'd come alongside the Catalina Mountains and you'd realize that what looked like one mountain range with everything sandwiched together was actually a series of mountain ranges. From back here, the the range was prophetically foreshortened. That's the phrase. They look like they're all together, but when you come alongside them, you realize the Push Ridge Mountains Ridge is much more in front of what is Mount Lemon. Now, that's some details you don't necessarily have, but you can probably imagine what that range looks like. And there's other peaks that look the same. What does that have to do with Isaiah? Well, as Isaiah stood from where he stood, south of the Messiah, so to speak, his prophecy about the Messiah had several peaks to it. Some of them are clearly fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus as a baby who grows up and then dies for the sins of his people. Jesus is born as a baby, which means he's fragile. Might we say like a twig from a stump. Jesus is from the family line of Judah, which is the family line of Jesse, which is the family line of David. In Luke 4, we see that Jesus speaks of the Spirit resting upon him, which is what I point out. So some of the peaks here in Isaiah 11 are fulfilled in this first coming, this first advent of Jesus. So we're right to celebrate Jesus' Christmas time and this Messiah. But other aspects of Isaiah 11 have begun, not merely at the first coming, but, but as Jesus comes into the hearts of his people and the knowledge of the Lord slowly spreads out across the earth into our hearts and churches that are planted and embassies of God's kingdom are outposts put throughout the world. Other aspects of the advent of Jesus, however, are not fulfilled until the second coming. Does the knowledge of the Lord cover the earth like the waters cover the sea? Yet, no. But what do we read in one of Paul's letters about this? Well, I'll say this. Let me ask this question first. Has the Messiah killed the wicked with the breath of his mouth? No. But in one of Paul's letters, 2 Thessalonians, a favorite passage of mine, we read that the Apostle Paul, writing to a church that felt they were very oppressed, He told them that the Lord Jesus will kill the evil one with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. In other words, there's another mountain range yet to climb. Isaiah 11 flashes bright and shining lights to us 
of the three advents of Jesus, especially the advent of the second coming. And I hope this December, if nothing else, this unplanned sermon landing into your Christmas season unexpectedly, I hope this December and our advent as we celebrate together the birth of the Messiah, we would do so longing for the second coming. When the work he began, he will see to completion. This is why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, still. And this is why we sing it in a minor key. Emmanuel means God with us. We long for God to be with us. Yes, he's here now, but there is more still to come. The last verse in the Bible goes like this. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And the chorus responds, amen, come Lord Jesus. In other words, even after the first coming of Jesus, we still sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. O come, thou rod of Jesse, Free thy own from Satan's tyranny and give to them victory over the grave. Rejoice. Let's pray. Invite the worship team to lead us in one more song. Father, we rejoice that you are able to do all that you promise. Lord, would you lift our eyes away from where, whatever has captured our gaze in unhelpful ways that would cause us to doubt, cause us not to see your work going forward in our lives, the lives of this church, the lives of this world, whatever it would be that would be causing us that, Lord, would this morning through the preaching of the word, for the gathering of your people, through the singing of songs together, may you fill us with hope in all joy and believing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.